That's our last sermon. We've made it through the book. As I was uh, writing the sermon, I got a little sad, to be honest, because I've really, really enjoyed just getting to know this book really well and getting to preach through it verse by verse. Um, and I, I want to really go back and just memorize a whole bunch of this stuff because I don't want to forget it. Um, but yeah, we're here. I remember as I got to the last verse and I'm writing the last bit of my sermon and I'm writing that last passage, like almost teared up. I was like, oh, I love this book. But we're going to get through it together and we're on to our next thing and the God's word is good and it has so much for us. And it's like a mine that no matter how much you dig, you find more treasure. And the further you dig, the more treasure you find. And it almost seems like you couldn't possibly find any more and yet there are further layers. And, um, well, we're going to get through Ephesians, but then we're going to be moving on to other stuff. But, yeah, let's get into it. Um, I think if you could take anything from the book of Ephesians, it's this. It's that God is sovereign and he is in control. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 to 7, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he not that plants nor he that waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And it's true, God is the one who gives the growth. And it's not in such a way that we don't do anything. We're not fatalists. We don't think that whatever's going to happen is going to happen. We think we make real choices and we actually do make a real influence in the world. But at the same time, God is sovereign. And we saw that he chose us in Christ since the foundation of the world, that he predestined us, that he adopted us and redeemed us and ransomed us. And the amazing thing is that all happened when we were dead. We were all dead. We didn't choose him. He chose us. He took us out of death and the misery and the hostility and the rebellion that we had. And he brought us out of that and he made us new in Christ and gave us faith and gave us sight. And he opened up our blind eyes. And it's amazing that we were sinful, fallen, wicked, and yet God was gracious. And he wasn't just like a little bit gracious. He didn't just give you like a tiny little bit and was like, okay, now work the rest of it. He lavishes grace upon you, and He gave you all spiritual blessings, Paul says at the start, in the heavenly places. In, in this book, we've learned about the goodness of God, uh, and we've learned about the goodness of His church. Our brothers and sisters, like, look around. God gave these people to you. They are blood-bought people, and we have each other. And our individual salvation that we have leads somewhere. It leads to this amazing work of discipling the nations, calling the Gentiles to repentance and faith and belief in Jesus. Uh, we're in this war, as we see towards the end, um, in this spiritual battle against spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places that we, uh, as we're calling out men and women from all tribes, nations and tongues to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we saw in that song, Every heart and tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The gospel goes forward and the gospel prevails. And it's amazing when we see the gospel at work. And so here we are, last message from Ephesians. And this is Paul's final word to the Ephesian church. And by extension, his final word to us in this epistle. And we left off in the last few weeks with the spiritual resources that Paul gives us. You know, the armor of God, the helmet of salvation the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of readiness that comes from the gospel, uh, the shield of faith, um, the sword of the spirit. Did I miss any of those? I'm just writing them off the top of my head. No, nailed it. Okay, great. I mean, we did just do it like the last couple of weeks. I should know it. Um, 
And so Paul, towards the end, he's directing us into a war, and he's directing us into an offensive. We're in a fight now. We're headed out into a war, and it's not good enough to just get a beachhead. It's not good enough to take your hill and to stand on your hill. Because God doesn't want us to take some ground and then hold it. He wants us to gain ground. This is a war that Christ has already won. And his gospel goes out and it takes ground. It takes ground. Shift your mindset from defensive to offensive. Now, yes, we have a lot of defensive things. In fact, in the armor of God, all of them are defensive except for the sword of the spirit. But I want you to shift from thinking defensively into offensively. And I'll show you why. Uh, why. Uh, I want you, want you to notice three things from this passage as we get into it. I'm going to read it in a second. Uh, there are three ways to take ground. And I want you to look for these as we read this passage. Boldness, community, and love. Three ways to take ground. Boldness, community, and love. So, we're going to be reading from verse 19. Also for me, actually I'm going to read from verse 18, that makes more sense. I'm praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. So we saw the three ways to gain ground. The first way from this passage is boldness. So Paul has already just built such, I mean, such a treasure trove, Ephesians. He's just built this amazing case for God's grace towards us in Christ Jesus and, and this theology and principle. And now he's going to apply everything he's got to his present situation. And we've got this little window into their world, basically, what their life was like. This tiny little window, only a few verses, but we're going to see the attitude that the early church had from, this, from these little things. So we know he's in prison. He says he's an ambassador in chains. Um, and that means, ambassador, it means he considers himself a representative of Christ. He considers himself someone who images Christ, who shows who Christ is, but he's also in chains. He's in prison. He's on trial, and he's going to stand before the Roman emperor because he appealed to Caesar. You can read about it in the book of Acts. And so the powerful and strong forces of uh, the government of the time are bearing down upon him. But Paul is not one to waver or feel intimidated because he knows that he himself, interestingly, is weak. And that's why he needs some prayer. Because he's going to come before the Emperor Nero. Now, any of you guys who know anything about church history or just history in general know that the Emperor Nero was hardcore. He was the most renowned persecutor of Christians. 
Um, just so you know the kind of guy he was, his favorite way to have dinner parties was to crucify Christians and light them up to be, uh, to be you know, nightlights for his party. So he would have the screaming, torturing Christians to be music. That, you know, his, his way of having music for dinner parties. I don't think anyone else really liked his dinner parties, but this guy Nero definitely liked them. And so the Apostle Paul is coming to stand before Nero, that man. Now, Nero hadn't got that bad yet. He hadn't really got to that point of persecuting Christians by this stage. Uh, but he was going to behead Paul. Paul is on, his head's on the chopping block, quite literally, as he comes before Nero. And this is his prayer. Pray that I will speak boldly. This is what he wants from them. He's faced with insurmountable odds, but Paul is confident that his message comes from God and that his message is powerful. And so naturally he sought for prayer. If anything we learned from last week is true, that makes sense. We were talking about prayer last week. Paul believes in prayer. He's a strong believer in prayer. Uh, James 5 uh, verse 16 says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power. Of course Paul wants prayer. He's going into the lion's den. He's facing off with the emperor of Rome at the time. And he recognizes that he's this ambassador and that he needs to be bold. He needs to be confident. He needs to have courage. In fact, he uses the word boldly twice. Did you catch that? He uses the word boldly twice. Paul recognizes his weakness. But as he said before in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Paul knows that if he goes in his own strength, it's not going to work well for him. If he goes forward in God's strength. I mean, isn't that true for us? Like, we need God's strength. If we're going to be bold and confident in our knowledge and understanding of Jesus, we need God's strength. I'm not that interested in your strength. I'm sorry, like, if that offends you. Um, I'm not interested in my own strength. Because if I was interested in my own strength, I would leave ministry. There would be no point in me being in ministry. But if God empowers me and strengthens me and gives me His Holy Spirit, I have all the more confidence that He's going to save people through His gospel. And we've seen it. We've seen God at work. The fact that you're all here is proof that God is at work. And if you remember Acts uh, 4.31, Peter and John have just come before uh, the council and they've said to them, stop talking about Jesus. Stop talking about the gospel. If you don't stop, we're going to kill you. And what do they do? They go back with all the brethren and they say, pray that we'd speak boldly. In fact, it says uh, in Acts 4.31, it says, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The threat of death was nothing to them. They were bold in the face of danger because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what we need. And Paul recognizes this. He needs the Spirit in his time of trouble to preach boldly, to preach confidently. Um, and if you today hear struggle to share the gospel, which anything like me, you probably do. You feel anxious and afraid about talking about Jesus. Paul gives you a little insight in how you can solve that. Pray that the Spirit would give you boldness. Pray that the Holy Spirit 
would make you confident in the message of the gospel. But even better, I'll do you one even better than that. Don't just pray for yourself. Ask people to pray for you. Paul is not shy in asking them to pray for him. He wants them to pray for all the saints, but he makes a particular point and, and emphasis here. Pray for me too. I need your prayers. I want to speak boldly. And if you here today want to speak boldly as you ought to speak, then ask for people to pray for you. If you are afraid in wherever, whatever circumstance you're put in and sharing the gospel, you'd much rather do anything else but do that, ask people to pray for you. Ask that you would speak boldly. And then we're not, we're not talking about like a brash, insensitive, all guns blazing, you know, slamming your fist down, saying repent to the nearest person you come up to. That's not what we're talking about here. He's going before magistrates and rulers and the emperor of Rome, and he wants boldness so that he doesn't waver, but he also wants clarity. He wants words to be given to him. He wants the Spirit to come through and give him the words to say. And I don't know if you thought about this immediately, but I, my mind just went straight to Matthew 10. And you'll remember this passage as I read it. Uh, Jesus says, uh, Matthew 10, 17, he says, uh, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. And Paul, Paul's almost quoting this passage, isn't he? He's, Jesus is talking about Paul. Paul is about to go, he went, he's already been before the governor, he's now going before kings. The king, in their, in, in their time, they would call Caesar the king of kings, because he was the emperor, and he would have all these different provinces, and in all those different provinces, there'd be a king. Have you ever noticed that there's King Herod? There's a reason why there's a King Herod, because the emperor of Rome appointed the king of Judea. That's why he was called the king of kings, because he was in charge of all these different kings. But who is the one true king of kings? Jesus. We say that all the time, but in the context when that was said, that is a bold statement. It was a direct challenge to the emperor's rule. And so Paul wants wisdom from the spirit so he knows what to say. And, and he says he wants to open his mouth. And notice that because evangelism, if you want to share Jesus with people, you have to open your mouth. You've got to say something. You can't stay silent. Silence will not win anyone. If you just do your good deeds before people and you just try to be a Christian in front of people, all that's going to happen is they're going to think you're a great person. Or maybe not, depends on the circumstance, and may think you're an idiot. But we want to share the gospel because the gospel is powerful to say it. And the Apostle Paul knows that because he went from a persecutor of the church into one of the most uh, passionate evangelists for Jesus. And so connect with people, you know, as we talked about our evangelism method, some of you guys will know that. Connect with people, care for people, and then share. But make sure you get to the share. Make sure you get there. Because that's the toughest place to get to, to the share. 
And the gospel is a spoken message. Show love and grace to people, but pray that God gives you the words to share. It doesn't matter who's in front of you, be confident. If it's just a co-worker or your child or your parents or even the Prime Minister of Australia, pray for boldness. And it says that the words will be given to you at that time. Pray for that confidence. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You're ashamed of the gospel. How are we going to gain ground? If you're not bold, how are you going to charge the hill? Have boldness and confidence, not in yourself, but in God's power to save it. As he says in verse 10, I'll read it again. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. As that's boldness. And it's pretty self-explanatory. If you don't have boldness, you can't charge the hill. That's how we gain ground. Next one. Community. Let's read from verses uh, 21 to 22. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Well, the first thing I want you to notice is we're not alone. You've got your team, you've got your squad in your corner. They've got your backs. We've got each other's backs. We love each other, we care about each other. It's real. And Paul, he sends Tychicus to the Ephesians, um, he must have Tychicus, we don't know much about him, but he shows up quite often. Uh, I'm pretty sure he shows up at the end of Colossians, he shows up in uh, 1 Timothy. Tychicus is, uh, to Paul, an important man. He must have been a man of notable reputation and gifting within the church. I mean, he's part of Paul's team, like the dream team, if you're in Paul's team. That's the team you want to be on. So Tychicus must be pretty, you know, pretty good guy. He's under his training. Uh, but he's also well known to the Ephesians because they, he calls him the beloved brother. So the Ephesians know who he is. So he was kind of—he was probably like one of those, you know, the, one of those guys that has a bunch of bunch of medals, I guess, on his chest. Uh, he's likely a seasoned pastor and preacher because he calls him a faithful minister. And Paul sends—he doesn't send this little underling to the Ephesians. He sends Tychicus. He sends one of the big boys to the Ephesians for a reason, and he wants to give the church accurate information on himself. He wants the church to know what's actually going on. And you've got to understand, in this time, to send letters was quite a treacherous process. Because, you, you know, if you had to take a, you know, a trip by sea, shipwrecks were fairly common. It wasn't, it was pretty dangerous to go on a ship, especially in the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean is a notoriously kind of violent ocean. And when you had these little ships that they would go across, it wasn't very good. You even read in Acts, if you remember Acts, Paul gets shipwrecked on his way to Rome. It was fairly common. And so if you wanted to send letters and stuff, and, and it was likely if you would send that stuff, people would, you know, bandits were waiting on the roads to get you. So it was a treacherous path, but despite this great distance and the treacherous journeys, the church made it a priority to maintain relationships. Now we have our phones and we have email and we have all of this stuff and yet for some reason we really struggle to maintain community and to preserve our community and maintain our relationships. Uh, Paul made sure that the churches were connected. 
He made sure that he wrote to them and prayed for them. He cared about them. He was concerned for them. He wanted to know what was happening in the churches around the world, and the churches wanted to know too. And the fact that the, the church wanted to know how Paul was, they wanted to know what was going on for him. Imagine getting a letter, and that letter took about a month or two months to get to you. That's, you know, a lot of stuff can happen in that two months, but even so, Paul sent Tychicus, and Tychicus has all the stories, everything that has been happening. He can do it much better than if they wrote it on a letter. And so he sends Tychicus, and there's this recognition that, you know, this, this battle that we're talking about, it's fought all over the place. I mean, the gospel was breaking forth all over the world. There were beachheads everywhere where people were taking ground for the kingdom. But notice that Paul, he's aware that the Ephesian church are worried, they're concerned about him. He sends his right-hand man, but he sends them not just to tell them what's going on, but to comfort and encourage them. To encourage them. And it highlights... One really important thing, notice this, the spiritual battle is not fought individually. You cannot fight it individually. It might be brave, it might be heroic to charge the trenches by yourself, but it's foolish, it's silly. And often, um, I'm guilty of this, you'll see all these young pastors and they think that they're going to go out on their own and, and go and take a city for Jesus. And sometimes Jesus blesses it, but it's foolish. It's foolish. God has given to us the church. And he has given us each other. So look around. These are the people that you have been given. These are the people with which we are to gain ground. And you can complain about it. You can moan about it. I know it sucks having, you know, me as a pastor, but you'll get over it. We'll gain ground. And so fight together. We have to be, you know, the wearing the armor of God, that's great. I know you guys all think about that individually. Start to think about it, church, for the church. You know, when you're thinking about the belt of truth, does the church preach the truth? Think about the breastplate of righteousness. Is the church searching and yearning for righteousness? Um, I'm going to read this now just to make sure I'm getting it all right. Are the shoes for the feet having the readiness given by the gospel of peace? Is the church evangelistic? If the church doesn't, it's not a priority to share the gospel, then don't, don't join that church. The shield of faith, if there's no faith in Jesus, Satan's going to have a field day in that church. And if this word is not being preached and the sword is not being unsheathed, get out of that place. Together, we put the armor on. Together, we gain ground. We need our squad. We need our group. We need our community. So what is the strength and vitality of our community? Where is our unity? Where is our sacrifice? As you can see, this early church, it was a priority to maintain that community, and they made sacrifices. Um, and I'm not, in the, in the Australian church, I'm not calling out any individual churches or anything. You guys can make your own judgments, but sometimes for some people, it takes just one bad look one morning without coffee, one bad sermon and people are looking for another church, one missed text, one uh, snub, one group of people snobbing it and all of a sudden people want to leave the church. And you don't get that kind of picture from the early church, do you? It's not like you can just bounce on down the road and go to the next church. There was one church. There was one people to be a part of. 
And you see the people were concerned for one another. They loved one another. There was a community that fought hard to preserve the unity. And there were so many people that tried to tear it down, but the churches cleaved together and maintained their unity and their witness. And they recognized that the church was their only place of refuge. And it's sad to see so many Christians in an area so nonchalant, so casual about church, so relaxed about it. They're just completely oblivious that there's a battle waging. People are perishing in their sins. People are dying. And they're going to stand before a holy God. Where's our urgency? We're just so casual and relaxed. It's amazing to me that there are these churches that are just so relaxed with the thought that their neighbours and co-workers and family members are going to stand before God. I mean, in my mind, either they're so full of hate for those people that they don't want to share Jesus with them, or they don't believe what they claim to believe. They don't really think that standing before God is that big of a deal. But if you look at the early church, they knew the stakes. And they knew the stakes were high. They had to huddle together for warmth because the world was a cold and dark place. And it's funny that uh, we often overlook these last few verses in the epistle. This is the one thing where you're like, oh yeah, that's a nice little message to the Ephesian church. And then you move on and you read another book of the Bible. It's not just nice, small talk to finish the letter. There is gold in these last verses. By God's uh, grace, uh, my prayer for our church is that our church can live up to this example that is set before us. That uh, we're not uh, separated from each other, we're not idle, we're not gossiping about one another. Um, and if that's the way our church is, like we're not going to gain any ground. Are we really going to gain any traction if we're against each other? Uh, in our fight to win Brankston and Greeter and North Ruffbury in this area for Christ, are we really going to achieve anything if we're all at each other's throats? Without boldness, without community, we're in trouble. And we need those both to gain ground. And this is the last thing we need to gain ground, and we need love. Read on, verse 23, last, last two verses. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So it starts with peace be to the brothers because the word peace is what the gospel accomplishes. It brings us peace between us and God. It brings peace between Jew and Gentile, between earthly relationships as we're all called into his kingdom. And, and the next phrases we see, we see uh, love with faith. It's a, it's a love that comes from faith in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're going to be people marked with love, we need to be people marked with faith in Jesus and faith in God and what he accomplished in the work of Jesus. See, gracious community can only come from our faith in um, in Jesus. And, I mean, if you look at the last quote, look at it. It says, "Grace uh, be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible." It's, it's only by God's grace that we have our salvation. I mean, if there's anything you can learn from Ephesians, it's that that it's only by God's grace that we can have it. I mean, He saw you before the foundation of the world and loved you. He predestined you and chose you and adopted you and lavished his grace upon you and ransomed you from death and caused you to love the Lord Jesus. 
And this is the work that is done in all of those who love Jesus. This is the work that's done. And this means that through the trial and the storm and through triumph and joy, whether it's in sorrow and heartache, through loss or even wealth, there is one constant in the Christian's life, and that is their love for the Lord Jesus. It's incorruptible. It's incorruptible. The Apostle Peter says in um, uh, 1 Peter 1.8, uh, it says, Though you have not seen him, referring to Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. It's just understanding that Jesus is all you need. Jesus is all you need. Though you have not seen him, you love him. What amazing words. But it gets even better because he says you are filled with joy. Inexpressible. Inexpressible. Man, I feel sorry for the non-believer. Not just because one day they may stand before God in their sins, and that in and of itself is a horrifying and horrible and terrifying thought, uh, but the main reason I feel sorry is they'll never know the joy that's in Christ Jesus. That they never would have tasted and seen that Jesus is better than anything else. To me, being separated from joy in Jesus is way worse. Not having the joy in Jesus is way worse. And uh, Paul says in Philippians 3.8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as lost. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Jesus is better than anything else. Whatever you place your hope in, whether it's going to be your family, whether it's your addictions, whether it's your struggles, whether it's that house that you want to buy on that perfect property and you can go build that house and that's going to be your dream and you're going to die in that house. Trust me, once that house is built and you've been there for five years, you're going to be looking for the next thing. And our hearts are restless until they rest in Jesus. Until we believe and trust in Jesus and understand that He is better than anything. He's better than anything in our lives. Paul has been transformed by the love and joy that is in Jesus. And because of that, he's got boldness and confidence in this gospel message. And it's easy when you get this. It's easy to love those around you. Because you have the only thing that matters. You can suffer loss because you have Jesus. Boldness from the Holy Spirit is ready for those who ask of it. Christians marked by love, joy, and the Holy Spirit, they're going to be bold. They're going to be confident. They're going to be gracious. What force of hell can stand against a church that is marked by the love of Jesus, who loved Jesus with a love incorruptible? People transformed by Jesus and that possess this kind of incorruptible love, the, the community they would create, based on sacrifice and serving one another. I'd much rather have 10 Christians who know and love the Lord Jesus than have a million nominal Christians who do not even know God. I'd much rather have 10 dynamic Christians who know and love Jesus than a church full, but only dead in whole religion. I'd much rather fight with those 10 than fight with a million. In the book of Revelation, Chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus talks to this church, the Ephesians. And I think it's worth, at the end of our tenure with this book, to hear what Jesus, the Lord Jesus, has to say to this church. And I'm stunned after reading this book to hear that this is Jesus' diagnosis. 
He says, but I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at birth. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now the Australian church has a lot to answer to God for. The Australian church has definitely failed in many ways. We don't have to follow the example of churches that have abandoned their love for Jesus, who have abandoned God's word and moved on to other things. We don't need to follow their example. We don't need to be like them. We don't want our lampstand to be removed from this place. We want it to shine. We want it to shine brightly. Loving Jesus is better than anything else. Loving the Lord is better than anything else. And if you feel like you have abandoned your first love, let me just invite you to repent and take that love again. Go back to those works you did at first. Because loving Jesus is better than anything. Just going to read the last verse. Give you a second to think about it. And now I'll pray. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Father, I readily admit to you that I've failed often in loving you. And Father, I want to be the first to repent of that. Lord, help us as we seek to put all the things we've learned into Ephesians into practice. Lord, we don't want to stay the same. We want to grow. We want to know you more. We want the Spirit to be filling us every day. And Lord, some, some of us have failed to pray to you. Some of us have failed to live in the light of your word. And Father, you know that that is a terrifying, a wicked thing to abandon your word and to live our lives as if you basically don't exist. my friends here that need conviction, Lord, I pray you bring conviction upon them hard, that your Holy Spirit would bring their sin before them, and you would bring them to repentance. Father, I pray for those that love you with love incorruptible, I pray, Lord, that you would comfort them, that you would give them boldness, and above all things, Lord, that you would grant to our church the Holy Spirit so that we can Speak boldly and open our mouths and speak as we ought to. That we would stand firm on your word and we would not care whether it is offensive, whether people think these things are outdated, Lord, because truth never changes. And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Lord, these truths are eternal and we hold them to be eternal. Build our church, we pray in this word. But most importantly, Lord, give us more love for Jesus. 
grant to us more love for your word. Open our blind eyes, we pray by your spirit. We thank you, Lord, and praise you. In Jesus' name.